Welcome to the CI Podcast. In this special episode, our chair, Jim Crooks, is joined by social critic and author Oz Guinness for a conversation around Christian and politics. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Jim Crooks. I serve as chairman of the board of Christian Unions Ireland, uh, which supports the work of Christian unions on university campuses in both the Republic of Ireland and in Northern Ireland. And it is my honor today to introduce to you Oz Guinness. Oz is a world-renowned social critic and author who has written or edited over 30 books. Uh, his works include Impossible People, Fool's Talk, The Global Public Square, The Call, and The Case for Civility. He serves as a guest scholar and visiting fellow at a number of prestigious centers of learning in the United States, but he's perhaps best known as a gracious and persuasive voice for Christianity in the public square. Oz has been invited to address audiences worldwide from the British House of Commons to the US Congress to the St. Petersburg Parliament. He was born in China, educated in England, and now lives with his wife Jenny in Virginia near Washington DC. So Oz, on behalf of Christian Unions Ireland, can I welcome you to this podcast? You have a, a very powerful historical link to Ireland, don't you? Because you're, in fact, the great, great, great grandson of Arthur Guinness, the Dublin Brewer. Is that right? No, it's a great privilege to be with you, Jim, and to be speaking back to Ireland, at least. I wish I was with you in person in Ireland, but it's a great privilege. Yes, well, thank you. And uh, we've entitled this podcast The Christian and Politics. And so in the course of our conversation, I'd like to explore with you the best way for Christians to understand their relationship to the world of politics. You know, in other words, what is the Bible's understanding of the relationship between church and state? Uh, what should the Christian's posture be towards the political realm? But I'd like to situate those sorts of questions within the wider context of, of cultural engagement. So I'm going to start off by asking you some questions, if I can, about the state of Western culture today. And then we'll think about politics. And then finally, we'll talk about the biblical principles that inform how young Christians should engage society with the gospel. So I guess the best place to start, Oz, is to remind you of that dramatic moment on January the 6th of this year, uh, when a large group of protesters stormed the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Some of the protesters held signs that said, Jesus saves, as they rampaged through uh, that great symbol of democracy. The images... Um, from that invasion of Congress shocked those of us who live on this side of the Atlantic. And I guess they told a story of a sort of angry, alienated faction within society that appears to be unable to come to terms with the modern world. And that's not a million miles away from some of the feelings amongst evangelical Christians on this island, people bewildered by the pace at which culture is changing. So there's a palpable sense of dismay and sometimes even anger directed towards a ruling elite which seems to view Christians as being on the wrong side of history. So that's sort of the context, and I'd like to begin, Oz, by asking you about the deep conflicts that now exist in the West. In the past, you have described the West as a cut flower culture, and I want to start with that. What do you mean by that metaphor, and how does it explain what's going on at the deepest levels in Western Well, if you look at our Western world, we're clearly, we owe a lot to the Greeks. You think of philosophy and science and drama and all sorts of things, democracy. We owe a lot to the Romans above all, governance. But the main debt of the West is to the Hebrews. And of course, much of the Roman world was Mediterranean. So the West came from the conversion of Europe. And that, of course, was through the gospel. So the main roots of the West, you think of human dignity, or of truth, or words, or freedom, 
or peace and things like this, they all go back to biblical ideas. And now they're systematically cut. If you look at Western secularism, it is a parasite on our best beliefs. In other words, all the same beliefs without God. And it is a protest against our worst behavior. And so secularism in European style is nothing like it in history, but it has at its heart an animosity against the gospel because of the corruptions of established churches in the past. So Europe is increasingly post-Christian. It's cut the roots of its links to the scriptures and the gospel. And it's an extraordinarily interesting place. So the West, I think, after 500 years of dominance is towards the end. And that's one of the big factors in our present world. There are a couple of um, contemporary ideologies which seem to have uh, dominated our, our cultural landscape in recent years. One is the rise of the modern self, and the second is the rise of critical theory. And I wanted to uh, ask you about both of those in turn. So over the past 250 year, 250 years, um, the, our understanding of the self has changed. I mean, this, the term expressive individualism is sometimes used to describe how contemporary society views the self. So how should we understand the modern self and how has that altered the way the West thinks about humanity? Well, since we're talking about politics, put in the fact the bookends of history are on the one hand authoritarianism, order, no freedom, and on the other extreme, anarchy, which is freedom and no order. And you can actually see both those in the first chapters of Genesis, the Tower of Babel being authoritarianism and the time before the flood being anarchy leading to violence. And the whole biblical position is a covenantal view of ordered freedom, which avoids the extremes. But what you've mentioned, say the expressive individualism, it grows out of the Western sense of the dignity of every individual, but it's gone to seed. Without the authority of the Lord and without scripture, the stress on the individual has gone to individualism. And we're much closer to say the book of Judges. There was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So an exaggerated individualism is one of the problems in the West. But let's remember, every time you have a swing towards one extreme, it automatically leads to the other extreme. And an excessive individualism automatically leads to an excessive authoritarianism because nobody can live in chaos. You need order. And so, yes, one of the strongest movements is that individualism. Don't step up, tread on me, the Americans. Not in my backyard, you don't. And all these sort of things. But they've gone to an extreme, and now we're seeing the rebound against it. Now that, that individualism has a f almost redefined how we think about human dignity, hasn't it? You know, I, I was reading an article about um, the Obergefell versus Hodge um, uh, um, opinion from the Supreme Court uh, when Clarence Thomas, um, he, said, he, he said that dignity is not something that can be given or taken away by other people. And the progressive left got very upset about that, didn't they? So is it not true to say that our understanding of human dignity has changed? Well, there's no authority behind truth or dignity or anything today. And so it's a matter of what everyone thinks for themselves and above all today feels. And you take, say, the trans movement. 
it defies biology and it defies science in terms of what I feel today and maybe I'll feel differently tomorrow and so on. And this is this rampant individualism gone awry. And I think the crisis is a crisis of truth. And that's one of the deepest things you see very clearly in America and much of the West, philosophical cynicism. God is dead, they say, truth is dead, all that's left is power. And so you can see that radical individualism, that radical subjectivism, that radical emotivism, what I feel. And then of course, constructivism. There's no real reality. And so, however, we construct it through our discourse and speech and so on, that's what's now considered true. But we're in a very, very dangerous position. And you can see that the elites complain about conspiracy theories, rightly. And the ordinary people complain about fake news, rightly. But they're actually both the two different sides of the crisis of truth which is another part of what you've mentioned as the crisis of individualism. So without the Lord and his authority over human dignity, over truth and so on, we are in radical chaos intellectually and that weaves its way out on the ground. In, in a world without truth, really all you're left with is power. And that I suppose leads us into this question about critical theory. So what would you say are the historical roots of critical theory and how does its answer to social injustice differ from the answer given by the Bible? I think in, in certainly in Ireland, students are very taken by critical theory. And so I just like your view on, on that ideology. Well, let me say bluntly over this. Many Christians know the book of Galatians. Paul says in effect to the Galatians, who's bewitched you? You're following another gospel. You started with the gospel of grace, and now you're going with the gospel of works. And what I say to Americans and many across Europe today is, who's bewitched you? You were following one revolution, the biblically rooted revolution, and now you're following revolutionary ideas that come from the radical left and the French Revolution. So take the French Revolution. It only lasted 10 years in France. And in 1799, Napoleon said the revolution is over dictatorship. But like a huge volcanic explosion, the French Revolution and its lava flows has affected the world ever since. In the 19th century, it created revolutionary nationalism. That doesn't really concern us today so much. In the 20th century, although obviously designed in the 19th, it created revolutionary socialism or communism. The Russian Revolution, 1917, and the Chinese Revolution, 1949, I was there as a boy. But what you're talking about, Jim, and what students are wrestling with, with critical race theory and so on, critical theory or just theory, is the third lava flow from the French Revolution. And it goes back to Antonio Gramsci, sitting in jail under Mussolini in the 1920s, trying to figure out why Marx was wrong, and you never had a revolution as he predicted. And he shifted from economic determinism to cultural dominance. You'd have a revolution if you could win the gatekeepers, the elites. Now that idea was picked up by the Frankfurt School from the 20s to the 60s, above all by Herbert Marcuse, who was the godfather of the 
radical left in the 1960s. I remember that well as a student. At the end of the 60s, he and some German radicals called for a long march through the institutions. In other words, we wouldn't win in the streets. My first visit to the US as a tourist, 100 American cities were ablaze. Martin Luther King assassinated, Senator Kennedy assassinated, but they knew they wouldn't win in the streets. You had to win the colleges and universities, the press and the media, and the world of Hollywood and entertainment. Then you could swing down and win the culture. And of course, part of their ideology, cultural Marxism tying in with postmodernism from Jacques Derrida and others in Paris, you have critical theory and many other types. You have radical feminism, you have queer studies, fat studies, and many things like this. But the central idea, there is no truth. All that there is is power. So as you know, you analyze the discourses of power. Who's the majority? Who's the minority? Who's the superior? Who's the subaltern? Who's the oppressor? And who's the victim? And then you weaponize the victim, not loving them as individuals, but seeing them as part of a group that you use to overthrow the status quo. But you set up a conflict of power without end. And the Romans put it very simply, you end in the peace of despotism. In other words, you only end when there's a power that can put down all other powers. In other words, might overcomes right. And you look at the radical difference between that and the gospel. The Bible and the gospel agree with the left in saying there is injustice. In America this last year, it was George Floyd's killing. But while we agree there's injustice, they are radically different in how you address the injustice. And the Bible with notions such as truth addressing power, a call to repentance, confession, forgiveness, reconciliation. And each of those unwrapped and applied in the full biblical sense. And I was not just the words that I used, but the full thing, not just spiritual, but political and social. There is no way of addressing injustice like the way of the Hebrew prophets and like the way of our Lord himself. So yes, we agree there's injustice, but then we go in a radically different way in how we address it. Yeah, it seems to me that critical theory has no concept of atonement, so there can be no reconciliation. I mean, it, it's no. almost as if all critical theory can do is change the actors who play the role of oppressor and oppressed. So there's no possibility of reconciliation. Is that no, fair? No, that's absolutely fair. You put it well, Jim. And think of someone like Douglas Murray, who calls himself an atheist and is a gay. But he would say one of the features of critical theory in the radical left is a complete lack of mercy. Mm. So there's no atonement. There's no reconciliation. There's no forgiveness. Think of the idea of forgiveness. We've made it something spiritual only. But if you think forgiveness is closely tied to freedom. When someone's forgiven, the past is free. It's no longer a ball and chain. Think of Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress. But not only that, the future is opened up too. 
So you have a second chance. There's nothing like it. And forgiveness is very closely tied in with a high biblical view of freedom. I love that. We are the champions of freedom. And one of the keys to that is a radical view of forgiveness. Yes, and it's really, I'm, I'm, I'm really taken with how radical the Christian understanding of the subversion of power is. You know, if you think of the Lord Jesus, he didn't come as a military general. He didn't come as a philosopher king. He came, he was known as the carpenter's son, and he lived outside the power structures of, of the world. In the end, the, the, the ruling elite did him to death. So is there a sense in which Christianity subverts power through obedience of Christ? Oh, absolutely. The Jews put it like this. God creates order, and sin, through humans, brings in disorder. So the Lord works into a disordered world to turn the disorder upside down. That's revolution. So revolution, considered biblically, is turning the world the right way up. And you have that in Isaiah, and you have it, of course, in Acts 17, where the agitators attack Paul, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here. Now, that's true revolution. So within the biblical understanding, turning the world upside down is turning it the right way up. But to do that, you need views of the Lord above all, but of truth and words and justice and freedom and forgiveness and all the things we're talking about. And we need to make them real in our lives today and not just spiritual terms but something that's true socially, something that's true politically. We're, we're probably anticipating the final part of our conversation, but I think that's an awful lot of what First Peter is about, you know, that, that the way we live in front in, in a pagan world, to use that term, is, is the key thing which changes rather than beginning with words. But anyway, let me just go on to, to, to the whole, the central issue here about politics now, as far as this conversation is concerned. And when, when you reflect from the days of, say, was it the 1980s, the moral majority, and then there was the rise of the Christian right. I mean, there's no doubt about it that evangelicals, particularly in America, but, but in other places, have invested a huge amount of talent and energy into political activism. And yet it does seem that culture in the U.S. has continued to move away from its historical understanding at a bewildering pace. So what is that analysis? First of all, is that analysis valid? And why has that happened? Well, the most radical decade in the West in the last century was the 60s with a huge cultural revolution. And by and large, evangelicals slept all the way through it. Or put it another way, if you look over the history of the 20th century, and I am an unashamed evangelical with all the staining of the scandals and the tarnishing of attacks today, I am an unabashed, unashamed evangelical, make no mistake. But if you look over the last hundred years, there have been two extremes. One extreme was overly privatized faith. Warm hearts, but culturally disengaged. In California, a historian remarked that the Christian faith was privately engaging, publicly irrelevant. And that fitted many evangelicals when I first visited the US. In the 60s, I only met one person, Carl Henry, who really understood what was happening in the 60s. They were out of it. Many evangelicals were. But then when they woke up, and actually the year was 75, the birth of moral majority, they swung from being overly privatized to being overly politicized. 
In other words, putting all their eggs in the basket of politics as if politics is the be all and end all. It's only part of life. There used to be a wonderful saying, the first thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. In other words, for example, politics is downstream from culture. It's downstream from the ideas in schools and universities. It's downstream from the church. It's downstream from the family and so on. So it should have been kept in its place. The politicization of everything was actually a left-wing idea from the 1920s, and we should have avoided that. So true followers of Jesus are neither overly privatized. No, Jesus is Lord of everything. So our faith touches everything. But nor should we be overly politicized. And of course, the trouble is, when Christians woke up, they thought that just by voting people into office, they could turn culture around. They couldn't because they'd already lost the cultural ideas centers like the universities. And so the bodies were dead before they were floating past, as it were, in cities like Washington. In other words, there's a naivety. Yes. I mean, it, it's a really interesting case study to look at how so-called equal marriage came into um, law in the United Kingdom, because at a political level, you could say that David Cameron who was then prime minister smuggled it through parliament without it even being in a, uh, you know, a manifesto commitment or anything like that. But in actual fact, everybody knows that the battle was lost upstream of politics and culture years mm -hmm. beforehand. Yeah. So it's almost as if when you think about these things, as, as you're describing them, politics almost becomes a surface issue that the really deep stuff is in the realm of ideas. And that goes on in the universities and in media. Is that, is that fair? Well, I wouldn't, hit any of them against each other. I just try and recognize what each sphere means. The family is critically important. Politics is critically important. Universities are critically important. So depending on what our callings are, some are called to be professors, some are called to be politicians, and many are called to be mothers and fathers and so on. So we've got to understand all the spheres and their importance, and then make sure we are exercising the Lordship of Christ wherever we are. We are salty and light-bearing wherever we are, and so on. But take what you mentioned about, say, marriage. You know, Nietzsche, the great atheist, he was right about several things. One of them was what he called the genealogy of ideas. You only understand an idea if you understand its family tree. Now, where do the ideas of the sexual revolution come from? They didn't come from Playboy or The Pill or Hugh Hefner or something like that. They go back actually to the French Revolution too and people like the Marquis de Sade. But if you read some of the architects, for example, Wilhelm Reich, who gave us the term, the sexual revolution, he says quite bluntly, they, the sexual revolutionaries, will only win when they have conquered two people, the church and parents. That's why you want sex education at three and four. But we should have seen a long, long, long time ago what they were aiming at, trying to overturn, as they put it openly, 3,000 years of civilization. And the sexual revolution is only one of the many revolutions we have today. But many Christians, and certainly many evangelicals, are incredibly naive. They don't think where the ideas come from. So we all need the history of ideas and good cultural apologetics to resist some of these things. 
I think a lot of students listening to us would find what you have said incredibly helpful. But how do you assemble the various strands of thinking about how the church relates to the state? How do you assemble that into what we might call a coherent set of principles? So our listeners will be very familiar with the Lord saying, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, or his discussion with Pontius Pilate, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. But then you have Romans 13, which talks about submitting to the state. And, and 1 Timothy 2, we're to pray for those in authority, or 1 Peter again about submitting to the state. Is it possible to arrive at a set of non-contradictory principles which govern how we should engage with the political sphere? But Jim, I'd urge Christians to start back a little earlier than that. In other words, for all of us, the first question is, how do we exercise the Lordship of Christ? And then secondly, under that, what are the biblical principles for politics? And you started with the New Testament, but you've got to remember we we need to start with the Old Testament. Now, of course, there's always two questions we have. What opportunity do we have and what responsibility do we have in our countries? So the early church whom you mentioned had zero opportunity. They were in the Roman Empire. They had zero political power. And our brothers and sisters in China or in Iran today are the same. They have no opportunity and they have zero responsibility. In China, the party is responsible. The average citizen, the average person has no responsibility or opportunity. Now, come to the West. In Ireland, in the West, we are democracies. In America, they're a constitutional republic as well as a democracy. And you have a completely different thing. Now, anyone who understands the American situation the primary roots through the Reformation were the Torah, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. And you have an immense rich understanding of politics there. And it did shape, for better or worse, the American experiment. You have notions like ordered freedom. You have notions like a separation of powers. Did you ever notice with the kings... And in, in, in uh, Israel, you had the kings, the priests, and the prophets. The prophets had the authority, and they could challenge the king. There's nothing said positively about what a king can do. It's all negative. They mustn't have too many wives. They mustn't get too much money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, you have the first constitutional uh, government in human history. There's a mass of political... Um, principles in the Old Testament. Now, of course, they were supposed to live it out as the Jewish people, and they failed. Now, the early Christians, of course, they had zero opportunity and zero responsibility. So we learn a lot from what they did. So they wouldn't say, take Caesar as Lord, because they wanted Jesus as Lord. And we've got to have that same courage today up against a state which is increasingly playing the Caesar. Do you know where the word theocracy came from? I mean, you know, the Greeks had monarchy, the rule of one, uh, aristocracy, the rule of the excellent few, and democracy, the rule of the people. And when Josephus, who was a Jew, was asked about the Jewish way, he said, we don't fit any of those. And he chose a new term, theocracy. But theocracy, unfortunately, became the rule of the clergy and became something highly corruptible. 
And the rabbis say, no, you should say not theocracy about the Old Testament, but nomocracy, nomocracy, the rule of law. That's exactly, where, that's exactly where I was going to go. That, that it, it, not only do you have, from listening to you, not only do you have the rule of law coming from the Torah, but you have this separation of powers. And <clears throat> what triggered in my mind when I was listening to you was when you read Jeremiah and you see the, the, the prophet, the, the role of the prophet, the priesthood, the king, and the officials, they start to blur as the culture collapses. Mm-hmm. You get false prophets injecting false ideas, almost like the universities, and you get the, the priesthood and the king uh, merging into an elite, and eventually the king becomes a puppet, and it's the officials who are running the show. So it's, a really, it's, it's really triggered my, my brain here, that the, the, the separation of powers, which of course you see most explicitly, I suppose, in the American constitution, is, comes from the Hebrews. Is that, is that fair? Well, through Montesquieu. No, absolutely. But let's put it another way, Jim, because you've raised a very interesting point. Every human system is corruptible because of sin. And the Greeks understood this. So monarchy becomes tyranny. Aristocracy becomes oligarchy. And democracy becomes mob rule. Now, if you look at the biblical way, you'd say, surely that would be better. No, we're all sinners. So the weakness of what you see in the Old Testament is simply the Lord keeps his word. So what you have, constitutionalism, comes from covenantalism. But the problem with covenants, the Lord keeps his word forever, and we don't. We don't keep our promises. We're unfaithful. And so human systems break down. It's not long between Exodus and Deuteronomy and Judges. No king, and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And as you said later on, in the intertestamental period, you have even worse corruptions. So we've got to say, sadly, every system breaks down. And one of the things we've got to do is how do you restore it when it does break down? But people have got to understand what's the system you're trying to restore. Now, the American system is very different. We could discuss that if you're interested. But England and Ireland and Scotland and many of the Western European countries, they're democracies. Now, have you ever thought the most famous definition of democracy was Lincoln's? Government of the people, by the people, for the people. But when Lincoln said that in his famous Gettysburg Address, people forget he's actually quoting. He knew he was quoting. And who is he quoting? John Wycliffe, who said that in 1384. I love that. (laughs) And what Wycliffe was saying was in his introduction to the English vernacular of the Bible. And Wycliffe was saying, when you have the Bible and people have biblical truths, then you can have democracy. I mean, government of the people, by the people, for the people. In other words, democracy is not just mathematical, counting heads. It requires certain truths without which democracy collapses. And that's the trouble in the West. It's become purely mathematical. It's almost back to your, your cut flower culture type thing that once, once the, uh, the link with Christian values and biblical values is cut, then any system is going to end up in disaster. I suppose that even applies. Now I'm really going seriously off piece to us here, but that also applies to economic systems, doesn't it? Because you know, oh. there, you know, within a Christian worldview, 
a market economy, a market's just a device to manage complexity. But when you cut yourself off from Christian values, you end up with this social Darwinism where greed is good. Again, I, I, I've just floated that. Is that sensible? Absolutely. Absolutely. In other words, every inequality is the potential breeding ground of injustice. And if you look at post-Friedman capitalism, the incredible inequalities, say CEOs and ordinary workers, or people like uh, Jeff Bezos and ordinary workers, this is obscene. And it's a market capitalism gone wild. And it will just breed counter-reactions. Yes. Uh, and it all comes back to being cut off from, from the source of truth. Right. Uh, Jim, I don't know if you know the work of Bruno Roche and Jake Jacob and their book, Complementing Capitalism. They are Christians, again, going back to the Torah, and they, they came out of the Mars Corporation. They have what they call a win-win capitalism or an, e an economics of mutuality, which is a much more biblically faithful idea. I'd be very interested to see if they link it back to some of those ancient ideas in, in, in Hebrew culture with the Jubilee year, which effectively was a, a limitation on capitalism and on the monopolization of ownership. Is that, is that fair? Well, that's where their idea comes from. Uh, having talked a little about the complexities of political engagement, and I want to just finish off, Oz, by asking you some more practical questions about how young Christians might engage this culture uh, with, with the gospel. Because again, there's, a, there's an awful fear that the language which evangelicals use is completely cut off from real life, as it were, and doesn't engage with where people are at in their culture. So how should young Christians apply their, the gospel, as it were, to the sorts of issues we've been talking about? Well, I think if in the college days you're introduced to a living faith that can be thought through in any area, you know, you're thinking about anything and everything under the Lordship of Christ. So we're talking about science or politics or law or the arts or whatever it is. We are thinking Christianly about all these things. Then we can keep them in perspective and we can really be salty and light bearing. But then when we're thinking like that, we need to look at the big picture of what's going on in our time. Now, Jim, let me put in the page because I think when I'm back home in either Ireland or England or wherever, many in Europe, just don't understand what's happening in America. I don't think many Americans understand what's happening in their own country. But there's an incredible distortion because of the bias of the press. So there's a kind of New York Times, Guardian, BBC view of the world. And you drink that Kool-Aid and you don't really understand. I would put America like this. Three words. Revolution, oligarchy, or homecoming. By revolution, I would say, please, Lord, no. But uh, we're talking earlier about the cultural radical left. That's behind critical theory and so on. Please, no, Black Lives Matter. That's where all of that comes from. Oligarchy, what you're seeing, and you can see it in the present administration, is a consolidation, a concentration of politics, bureaucracy, academia, the media, entertainment, and woke business. And you've got kind of one-party politics. This is not democracy. Very, very dangerous. What do I mean by homecoming? Well, as you know, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, an about turn of heart and mind. But the Hebrew word teshuva has another dimension still. It means about turn of heart and mind. But it also means 
homecoming. Sin is alienation, exile. So when you come back to the Lord, back to truth and so on, you come home. The American Revolution came out through the Reformation of the Old Testament, but Americans have forgotten their roots. In the 1850s, when they had similar divisions, you had the great president like Lincoln who called them back. He called it a new birth of freedom. Americans today, I think, need a new, new birth of freedom, a homecoming. Now, they don't have a leader like that today. Trump was a disaster. But Christians need to understand where America is. And a lot of Christians in America have gone wrong. You began rightly by saying it was a populist reaction. Now, what are they reacting against, whether it's uh, Hungary or Poland or America? The populist reaction is against globalism, is against secularism, and is against elitism. And it's actually a legitimate reaction, but it, it goes too far the other way. And we need leaders who understand the elites and ordinary people and can bridge them because our Lord cared for ordinary people. So, you know, a lot of Christians in America, they scorn the followers of Trump. I think our Lord would have looked on them as sheep without a shepherd. And I'm not anti-populist, but I don't think populism's the answer. But we've got to understand it has roots and it has very understandable roots. And we need Christian leaders today, or put another way, it's easy for Christians to be conservatives because much of the best was in the past. But there's a danger when Christians become supporters of cultures under stress. You've seen that in Northern Ireland. Same thing happened in South Africa, and you had it in the South of the United States. Christians are both conservative, because we have a great appreciation of the past. We remember, as the Old Testament says, but we're also progressives. The great ideals of justice and all that's coming when the Messiah returns, they're ahead of us. And we want to reach out for those in our generation so that when we die, the world is more just and more free and more truthful than it was when we started. So we are both conservatives and progressives in the best sense of the word. I think that's, that's really profound, Oz, because there is such a temptation, I find, certainly see it in Northern Irish culture, to, mm -hmm. to be nostalgic about the past, to think our job is to defend our historic rights, and then to have a sort of slightly Gnostic, uh, escapist desire to, for heaven. And, and not really, you know, so whenever things get tough, I will very often, an older gentleman will come up to me and say, do you not think the return of Christ is near? Now, that is probably true, mm -hmm. but... It, it's an escapist, isn't it? No, absolutely. You're, you're putting it extremely well. So we work hard. I love Hebrews 11 and the way people see that. We're acting into history, but by faith, we're looking over the horizon of the edge of history. So we know that the best things we do in this world, take Moses. He never made it to the promised land. Called to lead his people there, he never made it. There will always be in our lives things that are incomplete because in this world we can't make them. But we're looking over the edge of history and Hebrews 11 says, the Lord is not ashamed of people who live by faith like that. In fact, he's got a city prepared for them. I love that. We act into history. We're looking beyond the history of our times 
to what the Lord has in mind. Well, that's a lovely way to, to finish our conversation. I, I really appreciate your wisdom. Uh, given us an awful lot to think about. So every blessing on your own ministries, and thank you so much for your time. Well, Jim, just let me finish by saying, you know, across much of the West, and certainly here in the United States, evangelicals are on the back foot. We've been stained and starred by scandals and so on. But truly, the gospel is the best news ever. And when you look at the bankruptcy of the alternatives, we're beginning to see them very clearly now. And then you see the depth and profundity and richness of the biblical truths, above all who the Lord is, but human dignity and all these things. Time to get off the back foot and with courage and confidence move out. We are the people with the best news for our generation. And so I hope there'll be a young generation from Ireland. You know, I, I'm very proud to be of Irish ancestry. I loved visiting places like Skellig Michael and see how they kept the gospel alive in that rocky little island for so long. Or to think of St. Patrick and others. My own great-grandfather was at the heart of the 1859 revival in the north of Ireland. And uh, we have newspaper accounts of his preaching to crowds of 20 and 30,000. So the Irish have a tremendous part to play in the missionary movement across the world. And of course, those who left Bangor and sailed down in their coracles to France, and then you see that trail of Celtic crosses across France, Switzerland, and Northern Italy. You know, we who are Irish can be incredibly proud and grateful, but I hope we don't just look back we thank the Lord for that. It's time for the Irish to play their part again today. So the Lord be with you. What a privilege for me to be with you, Jim, on this podcast and all of you who are listening. Os Guinness, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for tuning in to the CEI podcast. If you have any questions following this discussion, we would love to hear from you. Fire us an email at comms at cui.ie.